You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Nighthawk is at the diner, but maybe not on the crook's menu. Internet service in Ukraine and Moldova is interrupted by strikes against Ukraine's power grid. Sandworm renews ransomware activity against Ukrainian targets. Russian cyber reconnaissance is seen at a Netherlands liquefied natural gas terminal. The European Parliament votes to declare Russia a terrorist state. Carol Terrio reports on where these kids today are getting their news. Malek Ben Salem from Accenture on digital identity in Web 3.0. And hey, that new list of most commonly used passwords looks depressingly familiar. From the CyberWire Studios and Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, November 28th, 2022. It's good to be back together after the long Thanksgiving weekend. Today is Cyber Monday. We trust you're staying safe as you shop online and that you'll also give safely online tomorrow on Giving Tuesday. On to the news. We heard last Tuesday about steps Google was taking to render Cobalt Strike less susceptible to abuse by cyber criminals. As you know, Cobalt Strike is a legitimate penetration testing toolkit that's been frequently abused by criminals who've used it to move through victims' networks and help stage attack payloads. Google reduced open-source Yara rules that should make it easier for defenders to detect such abuse. The step should also have the welcome result of returning the tool to its proper users, white hat penetration testers. Proofpoint also suggested that another newer pen-testing framework, Nighthawk, might be susceptible to similar abuse. Proofpoint said it hadn't observed any signs of Nighthawks being abused, and they acknowledge that the tool is a mature and advanced commercial C2 framework for lawful red team operations that is specifically built for detection evasion, and it does this well. But they caution it might be abused. MDSEC, Nighthawk's proprietors, didn't care for that discussion of a priori possibility at all, stating, Proofpoint also makes unsubstantiated and speculative projections that Nighthawk could be abused by threat actors in the future. This subsequently led to various questions over both Twitter and email about what precautions we take when distributing Nighthawk. MDSEC goes on to describe the steps it takes in its licensing process to prevent Nighthawk from falling into the wrong hands. 
Their discussion is too lengthy to recount in detail here, but it's offered to support their conclusion. They do state, We firmly believe that the layered mixture of soft and technical controls that have been implemented stand us in good stead to responsibly distribute the product to responsible customers. Iran's state FARS news service says, according to AFP, that its operations have been disrupted since Friday in cyber attacks. FARS calls the incident a complex hacking and cyber attack operation and cautioned that disruptions might continue for some time. There's no attribution, but FARS did say that it was often under Israeli cyber attack. There's also the possibility of hacktivism, given Fars's role as an official source of information during ongoing protests in Iran over the death of Masha Amini. The story is still developing. And while Russia's war against Ukraine has settled for now into artillery exchanges and Russian drone strikes against civilian targets, the cyber phase of the hybrid war has seen an uptick of Russian activity. Some of it is incidental, some disruptive, and some informational, First, the incidental. Moldova's Vice Prime Minister Andrei Spinu tweeted last Wednesday morning, Massive blackout in Moldova after today's Russian attack on Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Mold Electrica, Moldova's TSO, is working to reconnect more than 50% of the country to electricity. The record reported over the weekend that the attacks against the power grid have also taken down Internet service in both Moldova and Ukraine. Ukrainian internet service providers are using emergency generators as they work to restore online connectivity. Second, some disruptive activity has also been seen in the ongoing conflict. ESET reported over the weekend that it's observed a surge in a ransomware strain the company calls Ransom Bogs. The malware is written in .NET and represents a new strain of ransomware, But the deployment, according to ESET, is similar to what they've observed in sandworm activity in the past. Sandworm has been associated with Russia's GRU. The researchers tweeted, There are similarities with previous attacks conducted by sandworm. A PowerShell script is used to distribute the .NET ransomware from the domain controller, which is almost identical to the one seen last April during the Indestroyer 2 attacks against the energy sector. ESET also sees similarities between Ransom Bogs and Iridium, Microsoft's name for the GRU operation the company detected in prestige ransomware attacks against Polish and Ukrainian targets in October. Other Russian threat activity linked to past attacks against energy infrastructure has been observed in at least one Western European port. So far, it seems to amount to battle space preparation for a broader cyber war against Europe as a whole. According to the NL Times, industrial cybersecurity firm Dragos has warned that Xenotime and Camasite may be engaged in reconnaissance of liquid natural gas terminals in the Netherlands. The two threat groups have been linked with GRU attempts against industrial targets in the past. The publication quotes Dragos's Casey Brooks as saying, We know that LNG terminals are a target. It's just a question of when and how. These are tests to see where they could potentially have an impact with a digital attack. The researchers have seen signs of such preparation in the systems of Gasuni's LNG terminal in Rotterdam port of Imshevin. 
Oilprice.com reports that threat intelligence and security firm Eclectic IQ has seen increased activity around critical infrastructure in the Netherlands and in Europe generally. And in informational response to criticism of Russia's war, the European Parliament last Wednesday voted to declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism on the grounds that it strikes against Ukrainian civilian targets, including energy infrastructure, hospitals, schools, and shelters, violate international law and warrant the terrorist designation. It's effectively a symbolic vote since the European Parliament, Reuters explains, lacks a legal framework that might provide some mechanisms for enforcement, but the designation is thought likely to spur deeper sanctions. Maria Zakharova of the Russian Foreign Ministry responded in her Telegram channel, stating, I propose designating the European Parliament as a sponsor of idiocy. A few hours after the vote, the Parliament's websites were taken down for a short period of time by a DDoS attack, which the Wall Street Journal and others report members of the EU's Parliament described as sophisticated. It took about two hours to restore service, and since the incident appears to have been a relatively routine DDoS attack, it's difficult to see where the sophistication lay. The Russian auxiliary threat actor Killnet has claimed responsibility in a message posted to its Telegram channel, which reads in part, Killnet officially recognizes the European Parliament as sponsors of homosexualism, which one supposes is one way of looking at the conflict. Most observers are inclined to credit Killnet's claims of responsibility. The attack looks like something up their alley. And finally, NordPass has released its list of 2022's most commonly used passwords. It's so familiar as to be, well, depressingly familiar. The top five will come as no surprise to anyone. Number one, password. Check, always there. Number two, one, two, three, four, five, six. Double check for the numerically lazy. Number three, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. The added three digits offering a thread of hope of additional security. Number four, guest. Be our guest. Five, QWERTY. Check a Rooney for the alphabetically lazy. The toughest of these to crack. It's guest, believe it or not, which is crackable in a snail's paced 10 seconds. Don't misinterpret that comment as an endorsement, but cracking the others takes less than a second. None of the top 200 is even funny, although Batman at number 185 on the leaderboard shows a little bit of playfulness, more than Superman at 125, but maybe Gotham City just seems a little more interesting than Metropolis. And to those who use F.U. as their credential, right back at you, bro, or sis, or whatever, girlfriend, whoever you are, F.U. places at number 88, which offers a little bit of irony since 88 in ham radio shorthand means love and kisses. No 88 for you, bro, or for your girlfriend either. There's some national variation in the results. Among the five eyes, Australia and the United Kingdom favor password, Canada goes with 123456, and the United States likes guest. There's no listing for New Zealand, which seems like a sad oversight. Still, the four eyes who got an entry all picked one that placed in the top five. The master list appears to be a good guys-only affair, as neither Russia, China, North Korea, nor Iran get so much as a look-in. But we're pretty sure those lists would differ only in detail. So what do you say, Fort Meade? 
What's the average Ivan using these days in those St. Petersburg troll farms? Inquiring minds want to know. Coming up after the break, Carol Terrio reports on where kids today are getting their news. Malek Ben Salem from Accenture looks at digital identity on Web 3.0. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. What do you consider your most trusted source for news? Those of us old enough to remember Walter Cronkite certainly have some opinions on the matter, but of course these days most people get most of their news from online sources, and that includes teens. Our UK correspondent Carol Terrio files this report about how teens are finding their news. So Ofcom is the UK regulator on all things communication services. They say on their site, we make sure people get the best from their broadband, home phone, and mobile services, as well as keeping an eye on TV and radio. And we also help to make sure people don't get scammed and are protected from bad practices. Now, Ofcom has recently put out a report on news consumption in the UK. And this report provides the findings of Ofcom's 2021-22 research into news consumption across television, radio, print, social media, podcasts, website, apps, magazines, etc. And they had an interesting finding that social media is overtaking traditional channels for news among teens. 
So Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube are now teens' top three most used sources for news. Now think about that. These largely unregulated sites definitely have targeted personalized ads that must be almost impossible for a national regulator to monitor with any confidence. This is the place where our kids are getting their news from. I mean, if someone asks you a quick-fire question, who do you trust, public broadcasting or the socials, what do you say? TikTok, arguably the home to the full face wax challenge or the magnet ball challenge. Instagram, the place that internal researchers called a teen mental health deep dive including a study that found Instagram made body issues worse for one in three teenage girls. Or YouTube, the place with a reputation for taking users down dangerous rabbit holes. But thing is, I kind of get it. Were I a teen or a tween, I am 100% sure I would much prefer to be glued to one of these social channels as opposed to the BBC, CBC, or PBS. But here's the kicker. Ofcom's findings show that fewer than a third of teenagers trust TikTok's news content. So a mere one in three trust TikTok for news, yet it has surpassed things like the BBC as a source for news. It just seems like a weird dichotomy. And maybe the answer here lies in training kids in the art of investigative consumerism. Stay with me here. In the same way that we as readers might put our trust into an investigative journalist to double-check their facts and sources, we teach kids how to consume their daily news media so they can have confidence in what they're remembering, sharing, and commenting upon. Is that crazy? This was Carol Terrio for The Cyberwire. And it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show Malek Ben-Salem. She is the Security Innovation Principal Director at Accenture. Malek, always great to have you back. I want to touch base with you today about uh, some stuff I've been seeing about Web 3.0, and we can talk about that, uh, uh, but particularly digital identity within Web 3.0. What do you have to share with us today? Yeah, thanks, Dave. So let's start... With defining what is Web 3.0, I think. Please. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I have the answer, but basically (laughs) it's a term that was first coined by Gavin Wood. Uh, Gavin Wood is the co-founder of Ethereum, which Mm. is the second biggest uh, cryptocurrency. Now, recently this term has gained prominence And some people believe that the main premise of Web 3.0 is that it's supposed to break the world free of, you know, the monopolistic control uh, by using a mixture of blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and NFTs to give power back to the internet users, giving back power in the form of control and ownership. And that's it, you know. That's great. <laughs> uh, it's an aspirational goal. Aspirational goal, uh, definitely. <laughs> right? um, definitely. Um, if, if you know, our listeners uh, remember, Web 1.0 was basically the first version of the web where it was all about static pages. 
Web 2.0 was, um, you know, started in the early 2000s. Um, there was an evolution of, uh, you know, the initial scheme where now internet users can not just read content, but are able to read and write content. And so uh, companies like, you know, Facebook allow you to share content, right? You were you were the producer of that content. It's no longer the, you know, the, the uh, bigger companies who mm-hmm. are generating that content. Now in Web 3.0, uh, there might be along that way of giving control back to users and uh, enabling them more. There is a natural uh, development through the um, the availability of technologies like blockchain to give back control to the users in terms of owning and controlling their identities. Now we're dealing, we know what what's the existing form of digital identity, which is typically, uh, you know, you have a user ID and password, and that's how you prove your identity to, to a company or a, to a digital service provider. In Web3.0, um, the, you know, the natural evolution is the, this rise of decentralized identities, where, again, um, control is supposed to be given back to the users so that they own their identity. Uh, It's a unique identity uh, across multiple platforms and they can decide, you know, which pieces of their identity, which pieces of data they can share with, um, you know, this service provider or that service provider Hmm. and when to revoke access to that piece of data. Yeah, I mean, that that revocation is really a key element here. I, I suppose this is really intricately tied with privacy. Oh yeah, absolutely, and th- that's the whole premise of this. Is that is that this should give um, the users that capability of protecting their privacy. Uh, you know, the whole motivation behind building these decentralized digital identities is to basically um, there is an imbalance, if you will, between the power <laughs> between mm. the big platforms today and and the internet users, and and we need to rebalance that. I mean, I, as an internet user, would say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, one way of doing it is through these technologies. But again, you know, that's the, you know, the aspirational goal. Whether it's uh, feasible, I think that that remains to, to be seen. Yeah. Well, but that, that's my next question for you then. I mean, have you seen anything from a technology point of view? Is, is there anything on the horizon that makes you think, that this is a practical thing that might, we may come see to pass? I think in terms of the, um, the early proofs of concept and proofs of value that we've seen, uh, I think it's technically feasible. Uh, there's no doubt about that. The technology allows it. But um, as some lawsuits have revealed recently, um, we've discovered that um, some of the infrastructure or a large portion of the infrastructure behind blockchain or behind Ethereum is owned by big tech companies. Uh, and therefore, if, if they are the owners of that infrastructure, then they may end up being the owners of, uh, you know, these, these platforms that are uh, supporting these distributed digital identities. Hmm. So there are a lot of potential benefits here, but how about some of the risks? 
Yeah, so we talked about the benefits of giving back control to the users, um, you know, providing um, seamless digital consumer experiences to the end user. Uh, there, there are also benefits to the um, technology providers today. Um, maybe they can reduce their costs of managing these identities if um, that management work is given back to the uh, end users. But there are also risks associated with decentralized identities. The first being the risk of exclusion, right? There is a growing digital divide and, uh, you know, for, for certain demographics, you know, a Web 3.0 wallet may not always be intuitive, mm-hmm. uh, would be a steep learning curve. So I think there is definitely that risk. Um, there is the risk of, you know, being able to self-manage identity data that may not be straightforward for a lot of people. Even though managing, you know, a large list of passwords is daunting, um, but you know, managing these identity um, pieces also uh, in a decentralized manner may also be daunting. Uh, there is the risk of uh, a far-reaching implication of a certain hack. So if your identity gets hacked, um, then, you know, the, the threat actor who got access to that identity may have access to many services right at once it's not just access to one platform it's you know this is your identity for all services on the web um, and so the implications are are much higher um, there's a risk of imputability uh, and privacy as we know in these distributed ledgers particularly you know decentralized proc- blockchains are immutable hmm. so any data that is entered, on that blockchain is irreversible. And if you have past identities, there's no way to hide that. Mm-hmm. Past transactions, uh, even you know, for legitimate reasons, may not be hidden. Well, interesting insights as always. Malek Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire, C-U-L-73 to all you radio hams out there. That's see you later, best regards in ham radio speak. You were white hat hackers before hacking was even a thing. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Ah, I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. 
The CyberWire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Maria Varmatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com cyberwire.